My most telling memory of the show is about actually what happened after a show when my girlfriend quit speaking to me. Any of you who are fans of the show, remember the Chupacabra episode? Do you remember that one? Sort of this mythological half-man, half-beastie kind of thing that's like a vampire Mexican folklore kind of creature. And at the end, the final scene is the Chupacabra sort of body of a man and head of a chupacabra walking down the street and at the time I was in grad school in New York and we started my girlfriend and I after watching the show walking down Broadway and I said there's the chupacabra there's the chupacabra there's the chupacabra and after two or three times of this she laughed and after about the 10th maybe 20th time she got quiet didn't say anything at all and then after the 25th, 30th time I said something, she said something to me. She said, I don't see any chupacabra anywhere, but I see another mythological creature, the dumbass. <laughs> I can get a little punchy sometimes. No, what intrigued me about this movie was actually an interview with Chris Carter, who's the creator of the X-Files movies and the series. He took about five years off entirely from any sort of creative endeavor when the show ended. And in this interview I read about a month or a month and a half ago, he said, I used to call myself a non-religious person looking for a religious experience. I'd say that sort of defined me. Though in these last five years, I've come closer to faith than I have ever been. Come closer to faith than he had ever been. Now, I did see the first movie in this series, and this movie is really quite different. The first one, it's called Fight the Future, and that really indicates what it's about. It's all about the global conspiracies and the aliens and the UFOs and the super, super, super mega rich, like trilateral commission kinds of people selling out the rest of humanity just to save themselves. It's all about doomsday scenarios. And so the meaning of that movie is indeed to fight the future. And it follows very much the motto of what the series was about. The truth is out there. The truth is out there hiding, waiting to be discovered. If only we will dig enough, search deeply enough, find the right place where what is most obvious is in fact hidden from our eyes. But this second movie is very different. It is subtitled not Fight the Future, but simply, I want to believe. The question is not this time, what can I uncover? What can I discover? The question is something actually I think a lot more close to all of our hearts. Those of us who will never be visited by UFOs or engage in global conspiracies to hide the end of the world. The question is this. What can I trust? What is trustworthy? What is worthy of our faith, our fidelity? Now, maybe it's a sign of the changing times, because when the X-Files started in the 1990s, it was the end of the Cold War, things appeared just to be going perfectly. One great history professor even called it the end of history, that sort of all problems had been solved, and now we just needed to be sort of technically proficient enough to get us to a point where we could just sort of, sort of share wealth amongst the world. Well, in this post-9-11 world, the things that go bump in the night no longer have to be invented don't seem so imaginary. And well, I don't want to get too political here, but government distortion of truth, even outright lies, aren't that far-fetched anymore. And actually, it's about as much I'm going to say about this. If you want to read a book I just started reading this past week, it's amazing and it's scary. It's called The Dark Side by Jane Mayer, a reporter for New York Times. 
Pick it up if you're interested. The truth is the stakes are higher now. And so the question for many of us is what can we really set our hearts upon? What is there for us at 3 a.m. in the morning when sleep does not come and we perhaps are perplexed as to what our lives mean and what it all means? Now, in this movie, you don't need to know too much about the X-Files mythology, and there is a lot of it. Go to the X-Files Wikipedia page, and I guarantee you, you will fall down a rabbit hole that could keep you in front of your screen for about six hours at least. It makes the movie, in some ways, this movie, much less fun, but also makes it more accessible, and it still rests on the twin pillars of those names that I know many of you are really familiar with, Mulder and Scully. Now, in this movie, Mulder has been finally kicked out of the agency, kicked out of investigating the X-Files, those cases that seem to have no true, ultimate, rational explanation. And the X-Files has been closed down. And Scully, Dana Scully, Dr. Dana Scully, well, she's a brain surgeon, and she's caring for a potentially terminal child, a very sick child with a brain disease. And she poses this very risky course of genetic therapy. And this plays in the most ludicrous way into the larger plot. I mean, here you have an established brain surgeon, and what does she do when she gets the go-ahead to do and pursue this very risky genetic therapy upon this child's brain? She Googles genetic brain therapy. (laughs) No. But what that does, it unlocks the secret to the larger plot of the movie, and it's all about the discovery of the whereabouts of a... um, kidnapped FBI agent. That leads to black markets of organs and transplants. And to be honest, although it's not far out UFO type stuff, it is completely far-fetched. And I'll just give it away. Imagine your head on someone else's body and there you have it. That's really what the movie is about in a lot of ways. But one of the central characters is a potential psychic named Father Joe. He is a convicted pedophile, a priest who is disgraced and rightfully so. And he's having visions, he claims, about the disappearance of the agent. And the question that stands at the heart of the movie, is Father Joe an accomplice to the crimes? Is he an out-and-out fraud? Or could it be that at the base, his visions are an expression of his redemption from the awful, awful things that he has done? Is he believable? Is he worthy of the faith that Mulder, and especially Scully, really struggled to place in? as they might try and solve the crime. The movie is, as the title suggests, about the power of belief in our lives, about the struggle with our desire to know what we can or even what we should believe, those things that we feel that urge to hang our hearts upon. I want to believe might be, and the characters are very aware of it, it might be self-delusion, it might be fraud, it might be an invitation to just absolute gullibility and to be thought of as a fool. Or belief also could be, and the movie leads us in this direction as well. It could also, faith, belief, open us up to a whole new level of relationship to reality that is only possible when we say yes. When we say yes to the possibility that faith can help us grow. It reminds me of this story that I heard early this year, perhaps you heard on NPR. It's a study by a Harvard psychologist named Ellen Longer, and what she did is she brought together a group of women who, in fact, were quite physically fit but didn't know it. 
It was a gathering of 84 hotel maids who did a job that, in fact, was quite physically rigorous, but the women didn't think of their jobs in that way. And so the group was split in a half. One group was told absolutely nothing about the nature of what they were doing, and the other group, in very detailed way, was given a grounding, a belief in the fact that, you know, when you pull back a bedspread, when you make a bed, when you dust, you are burning so many calories each time you do this. And the results, just a month later, were quite remarkable. On average, on average, all the women in that second group who learned, who had the belief that what they were doing, in fact, burned calories, the blood pressure all went down, what they called a hip-to-waist ratio went down. They all, in fact, lost objective weight. It's a demonstration of what science calls the placebo effect, that if we believe that we are doing something positive, it will have positive benefits for us. Now, the really interesting part of this study is that the placebo effect is normally just about our subjective perception of where we are. You know, if we're going through a treatment, we might feel feel in our minds actually better. We might feel the presence less of the pain if it is a difficult course of therapy that we are doing. But the real finding of this study about the nature of what we think about our lives, about belief, is that, in fact, it wasn't just subjective. The women who were told and equipped with knowledge about the nature of their reality, their conscious relationship to their work, they objectively lost weight. Reality around them was transformed. Now, this is kind of a cool, exciting study to hear about. And I tend to get very excited about stuff like this. You know, it's my own private version of the X-Files. But I got to tell you, I had to hold my horses. (laughs) Because this kind of thing is very, very easily abused. About a month after that, about a month after I heard this study, I was in a local bookstore and I was perusing through the self-help section. You know, I always want to see maybe a book that's not there that I might write someday myself, you know, and see sort of what's out there in the larger spiritual marketplace. And I picked up this book that basically was, you know, weight loss by faith or something like this. And there was this one anecdote, this one story when you first opened it about a woman who said that what she had was a setting of her intention that she would lose exactly 30 pounds. Every day she prayed for this intention and she gave herself this intention and she changed absolutely nothing about her life. She didn't exercise, didn't pay any more attention to what she ate. In fact, she ate more chocolate, she said. And lo and behold, at the end of the month, she had lost her 30 pounds. Hallelujah. (laughs) Now, as you can see, inspires perhaps a little bit of skepticism in me. And maybe her story's right, I don't know. There wasn't anything to back it up. But the real difficulty for me with this story, with this tale, is that it might hurt in the most deepest way possible people who are hungry for real change in their lives. That we might settle for the grace of easy answers. The idea that true transformation comes about without some struggle and without some work. Even worse, the implication of this kind of belief, this kind of relating to reality, is that if you do not get, you do not get, and you, and you do not get what you wish for, you just haven't wished hard enough. You got the wrong prayers, or the wrong meditation, or the wrong beads, or the wrong mantra. 
get a right one and the universe will give you exactly what you want. I have to tell you, this is just another New Age version of the oldest tale there is, what my Buddhist friends called karma abuse. That if you are suffering, you must have done something in a past life to deserve it. It is just another version of the idea of the old vengeful, retributive God who said, if you suffer, you must deserve it. You must have done something to land in this pot of hot water. Except here, in this reading, I think it's even a lonelier version because the entire spiritual universe is collapsed to the vanishing point of just our own solitary individual wills. The world is so much more, blessedly so and painfully so, so much more than just what we would wish it to be. See, you can call a raging fire, a soothing bath all you want. I encourage you to touch it. You will still get burned. It's like that Seinfeld episode, remember when Kramer adopts that mantra when he's stressed? Serenity now, serenity now. As they say later on in the episode, serenity now, insanity later. <laughs> Just calling something something because you don't like the way things are will not change the objective nature of reality. For belief to be real, for faith to make a difference, it has to be mindful of reality, not mindless in relationship to reality. It's not, as some people define faith in that character, faith is believe in what ain't so. Faith is believe in what ain't so. That's just a caricature. That's not the depth of faith. Faith is this. It is our conscious relationship to the world, to our world, and an openness to the world's possibilities. I'll repeat that. Faith is our conscious relationship to the world and an openness to the world's possibilities. Now, in the movie at the center of this struggle stand Mulder and Scully, wanting to maintain this conscious relationship to the world and its hopefulness, its possibilities. Now, since the show was passed, we learned just a few things obliquely about Mulder and Scully. We realized that once again, they've made a stab at it as a romantic couple and has failed and that they have had a child that has died. And so they are each bearing within them some scars and some personal pain. They have set their hearts upon things and the world, they realized, is not just sometimes a very strange place, but a very difficult place as well. Mulder continues to be the pursuer of all unacknowledged things. He wants to bring them into the light. He wants to believe so badly. He wants to heal his own original trauma, which if you know the mythology of the original series, it is that his younger sister was taken by aliens. Now, temperamentally, I do have to say, I am more like the molder in this pair. I am more likely to trust rather than to doubt. I am more likely to say, there's got to be something there. There's got to be a pony in here somewhere. And to dig and dig and dig, if you know that phrase, to dig and dig and dig until I can find it. But I must tell you that my heart, the beating of my heart was more with Scully in this movie. Because she knows very deeply what it's like to be burned to have the objects of her faith prove themselves hollow, whether it is Mulder or Father Joe or God. She wants to follow her call. She really desperately wants to know what the right thing is to do as she proceeds through the story, particularly in the care for this young child. It reminds me of one of the oddest phrases from all of the Bible. 
It's one of the what they call the so-called healing stories in the Gospels all the time. Jesus comes upon a scene, sees what's there, heals there, brings them back to life, brings them back to full health. And in one of these particular healing stories, what happens is the child is healed, and the father says, Lord, I believe, but it doesn't end right there. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Scully's just like that. She believes and she doesn't believe simultaneously. It's a paradox. It doesn't make sense. And actually, if we think that faith is a settling of all of our accounts and got faith is kind of like got milk, you can hold it in your hand and it is a content and you can say, this is, I have faith, it's mine. Everything's all settled. Everything's all squared. If that's our understanding of what faith is, then I believe, help my unbelief, has no logic and has no sense. But there is a deeper faith in life beyond intellectual certainty. It is about the basic orientation of what faith is. It is not about the content of faith, but about the character of the person who believes. I believe, help my unbelief. That second phrase, that is the key to remaining open. It is the key to remaining willing, remaining teachable. It says something like this when I read this phrase, I believe, I've had something remarkable happen to me, a healing, a restoration of life. And all of us who've known these times in life, big or small, know that sometimes what happens after one of these experiences, after one of these epiphanies, is not that everything is settled, but in fact, the doubts might seem even more strong. Because rather than making you profoundly certain, it can make you profoundly uncertain. The world operates so strangely. Inexplicable things happen. And at that point, we could say, okay, I've had my mountaintop experience and I can turn away or I can say the mountaintop is the only thing is real and I won't return to life. But there's a deeper call, a deeper call that says, help my unbelief. I still don't know. Something remarkable has happened, but I don't still know exactly what it is. We want to keep growing, to keep opening to keep awakening, to keep trying to understand. Here, faith is an orientation to the world, not an assurance, not an assurance that, you know, you're getting the direct airline, the ticket on the A-train to heaven, but it is the hope, the hope that we can continue to grow through this life. It is an attitude that we will find out what it is that we are called to do, even if we don't know it right now. There's a very key scene in the movie that hints at this. It is Scully, and she is arguing with the priest who is the overseer of the religiously run hospital that she works at. And it is much more complex than the very stereotypical, you know, religious believer versus the secular scientist, faith versus reason, science versus religion. It's much deeper than that. Because all the while when she's arguing with the religious authority about this experimental treatment, you see, and it's very intentional, a cross that hangs very, very delicately right here at the center of her throat, right here at the center of one of our most vulnerable places in our physical being. See, the challenge is not between faith and disbelief. The challenge is between the kind of faith that absolutely knows, almost arrogantly, what the right thing is to do in any moment, in any time, and the kind of faith on the other hand that says faith is not about certainty. Faith is aware of its own vulnerabilities. 
Scully is not skeptical because she is a cynic. It's really easy to be cynical. She's not unwilling to risk her faith or her belief because she thinks that only fools have faith. She is seeking that balance, like many of us are seeking the balance, between what we can trust and what we can question. It is not an easy question, but I think it is the most essential one that any of us will ever face. What is ultimately worthy of our faithfulness? The movie hints that really there are two very different kinds of faith. The first is this, and I think it is a rejection of this kind of faith that has drawn many of you to a place like this. It is the belief that belief is about a content. Jesus rose from the dead. God authored the Ten Commandments. Yes, Buddha actually existed on that one grain of rice a day, all the time, right before and up until he was awakened. This kind of faith says, believe the content, have the right thing you know about the content, and you will be saved or enlightened or everything will turn out okay and your accounts will be settled. But there is a second kind of faith, closer to the kind that we believe in here at Wellsprings. The second belief is a devotional pursuit of a vision of what our life can become. It is not about content. It is about character. It is the faith that is faith enough to remain open to life's possibilities, even when we are fearful, even when we are angry, and even when you are so uncertain that all you want to do is to close down and close off. It is the difference in two different kinds of faith between about and of. The first is the faith about Jesus or the faith about Buddha or the belief about something. Do what they did and you will be okay. The second is the faith of. Not saying that our religious exemplars are way off from us and the way we get and close the distance between here and there is believing something about them, but trying to strive to the best of our lives to have the kind of practice, the kind of belief that they had because they are not that much different than who we are. It is to access and integrate that divine spark within each of us. It's kind of like quoted from one of the oddest pieces of Christian scriptures, one of the oddest pieces of the Buddhist tradition. It says, and I know some of you have heard this before, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. It's not a very nice thing to do to a teacher. But it's not talking about killing the literal Buddha. What the tradition says is that if you meet the historical Buddha, you are probably believing about. You're probably trying to conjure that thing that you say, I don't have it, the Buddha has it, and so if I get close to him, I will become what I want to be. They're saying that's just your ego lifting it up. That's not the real Buddha. The real is inside here, inside of each and every one of us. Our faith tradition says that there are numerous, numerous different kinds of way to have that first kind of faith that's all about content. Multiply the sacred stories. They're not done yet. And we're a part of writing a new one here at Wellsprings. There is not just one content that suffices for all of life to get us to that place of that second kind of faith, to become people of love and character and depth and compassion and devotion. 
Reverend Rob Eller Isaacs, who is a colleague of mine, actually was the guy who interviewed me in the final step before I got ordained. He quotes from the great mystical poet Rumi, who says, there are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. There are a thousand ways to kneel and to kiss the ground. Now, he offers this as a critique of Unitarian Universalism because, even as a UU, he says, we love the first part of that, a thousand ways, a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground, all those choices. But he says it's not what it's about. Pick your one way of the thousand ways. You can't do all thousand at one point. Pick your way and then do the most important thing, which is this, the kneeling. I hope it's clean. and the kissing of the ground. That's what spirituality is about. To make sacred our life that we stand on here, right here, right now. To recognize there are a huge host, multiplicity of choices, but to say we will in our way kneel and kiss the ground and make sacred this place that we walk upon. That's what real faith is all about. It is not a source book that tells you how to do what you need to do. Real faith is the trust that we can learn to face what life presents before us and that we can learn to do what needs to be done and we can follow that call beyond the place of our knowledge into the place of our becoming, into the place of growing. There was a time in my life when I struggled really really deeply to understand this. It was actually that same year when I was talking earlier in the beginning of the message about when my girlfriend stopped speaking to me. Later that year, actually after we had broken up, and there's probably some connection between that and what happened later on, which is that I got really, really depressed. And I can laugh about it now, but it wasn't at all funny. I really wondered if I had the the guts, the spirits, the stuff, the right stuff to become a minister. And I went to see one of my favorite professors, Edwina Hunter, and may she rest in peace. She died a couple of years ago, Edwina Hunter, at seminary. And I knew that she had struggled with depression as well in, in her life, and I knew that she had made wisdom from it rather than just bemoaning it. And she asked if she would pray with me, if she could pray with me. She knew I was sort of at this point a Jewish person becoming a Unitarian Universalist, but she said, you know, Jesus was a Jew, so let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. And I think for the first time, I really listened to what that prayer was about. And I honed in on those words, thy will be done. Thy will be done. Because when she was praying it, I actually started to cry when she was praying it. Right at that point, right at that point, thy will be done. Because I had to tell you, my will right then wasn't worth much at all. The word depression literally means, it's like the Mick Jagger thing, under my thumb, flattened out, removed, the spirit gone. And when we started talking again, she said, you know what? Perhaps you won't know exactly what it is right now that thy will can be done, that will beyond each and every one of our lives, whatever we choose to call that source. And she said, this is my wish for you. That you can say each night in your prayers these words, I will to will your will. That you will recapture what it is to want to believe. I will to will your will. Sometimes that is the best that we can get, especially when our own wills are feeling weak 
or flattened out. Even when we are unsure of the exact content of our belief, still we can express our openness, our desire, our wanting to believe, our profound desire, our want to have that conscious relationship to the world and its possibilities. And that will be enough. Now, personally, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I just recognize, you know, you flip the calendar and sometimes I can fall asleep to life. And this past week, I didn't. Took a little time off, got to recharge a little bit. And I recognize it was just sort of over three years ago that Wellsprings started out of the gate. And I think at this point, middle of August, Wellsprings wasn't even Wellsprings at that point. We were sort of throwing names to the board and saw what stuck or at least what sounded good and frankly, we thought what would sound marketable and I'm proud of the name. I like it a lot. Three years ago, I knew a few of you, a very few of you, the tiniest little bit. But I really didn't know any of you. And almost none of you knew me. Three years ago, faith and I mean this in the most serious way possible, faith was all I had. That's what new ventures are about. That is about the world and its possibilities. And just so you do not think I am tooting my own horn, I am not, and I mean this seriously, I am not the hero of this story. My faith was in that second kind of faith. The kind of faith that says there are so many contents that can move us along the path towards greater spiritual maturity and growth. My faith was in that place of something bigger and deeper and richer and much more deserving of praise than I personally am. It is the kind of faith of a devoted life, not an indifferent one. The life that is awakened, not stumbled or slept walked through. It is the kind of faith that unites people of goodwill and good faith from all traditions and all places and all times and all eras. It is the faith that knows very intimately what it is to have a broken heart and to believe in healing. It is the kind of faith that knows fear and still can choose courage. It is the kind of faith that knows it is very easy to be cynical. And in fact, sometimes, and I read the Onion magazine online every week, it's really smart to be cynical. It's really hip to be cynical. It's really cool to be cynical because all those idiots out there believe in all that stuff. And that's all true. But still, the kind of face that knows there is something beyond cynicism and beyond mocking and knows instead we are called to offer hope to a world that needs it. And is the kind of faith that knows how battered and bruising our life can get but still holds at the center of itself the knowledge, the knowledge that the Spirit has winds that will lift us once again. There are many things I do not know, many things we at Wellsprings claim not to know. But I fall back on what Carl Jung said many decades ago. The great psychologist, when he was asked about the truth of spirituality and the truth of religion, the truth of how he understood God to be, he said, I don't believe. I know. I don't believe. I know. May you know these days the things upon which your hearts can rest. The deeper compassion, 
the abundant love, the call of eternity that can turn all of our lives into something even greater than what we are. May your hearts rest in these things, and may you know them as intimately as you know your own lives. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together.